Greg, it is June 25th, 2017. What are you into? Well, I've been uh, working my way through book three of Mistborn, the Hero of Ages, and I have been enjoying it. I'm maybe a third of the way through now, and I'm enjoying it just as much as I've been enjoying the others. I have uh, I have no complaints. I also started playing uh, Hitman on PS4. I've had it in my library for a very long time. I've always loved the Hitman games, and I started um, kind of playing this one, the most recent one, in earnest uh, yesterday. And what I'm finding out is that this is actually a fun game for Karen to watch me play because there's a lot of like, oh, what happens if you do this? And maybe we should try to do that. And it's kind of, um, and it's slow paced enough that, you know, someone sitting in the room can really kind of tell what's going on. And it reads well to another person, unlike say, you know, like a shooter game where I'm like, yeah, I got a headshot. Hooray. <laughs> I know you barely saw it because these things happen very quickly, but I did it and it made one, made a number go up, which makes me happy. So uh, so yeah, I've been playing Hitman. Um, another thing I've been doing, which you're aware of, and I think other people uh, are aware of who've been listening to the podcast, is I have been continuing to obsess about the Kingkiller Chronicles. <laughs> um, I don't know why I'm this obsessed with something that I think is just bad. Like, I just think they're bad books. But for some reason, I can't stop thinking about them. And there's something there in the badness that is interesting to me somehow. And I'm not sure. I don't know how to put my finger on it yet. But it's the same kind of like interesting badness that I saw in Suicide Squad or in Batman versus Superman or in the Star Wars prequels where it's like, I feel like there's something good here, but what is it? Um, and I'm just obsessed with kind of getting to the, there's a, with Kingkiller books, especially there's a puzzle for me because it's like, what do people see in this? Because respectable people love these books, people that I respect and, you know, in the, in the literary world, but also just people who I respect just as friends. They like these books. They love these books. And I can't put my finger on it because it's not even like, oh, well, you know, yeah, they're poorly written, but, you know, they're a lot of fun to read. They're fast-paced and they're pulpy and they're fun. They're not fast-paced. Nothing happens in any of the books. Um, it's, I mean, it's like YA grade writing, but I just, I don't understand what people see in it. So I'm, I'm, I'm like, I just want to pull these things apart and see like, what is it? Why do people like you? How did this book become one of the greatest, you know, fantasy sensations of the decade? So... I've been a little obsessed. I've been reading reviews. I've been reading analysis and critiques, positive and negative of these things, trying to figure out what is going on in them. Um, but I decided to devote some of that energy towards something, uh, I don't know if positive is the right word, but maybe um, constructive. Uh, and so I'd like to take some time, this podcast, and based on the amount that I've written so far, probably another podcast, <laughs> Um, to rebuild uh, The Name of the Wind, the first book in the Kingkiller Chronicles. Um, so what I want to do is kind of take this thing apart and see if we can put it back together with maybe some new parts with, you know, get rid of some old parts, maybe add some new parts and maybe keep 
the core of what makes this thing interesting, but maybe talk about how Patrick Rothfuss could have made this into a more interesting book. Okay. <laughs> Based on your nine pages of notes, I've strapped myself in for whatever weird fever dream we're about to enter. Uh, no, yeah. but I think this is a really cool idea. Um, like you called it a rebuild. I like that idea uh, because there's a lot of things that, you know, you say, I could see there were hints of something good in this. I feel this. I feel that way about Batman versus Superman all the time where I'm like, man, there's just a couple of things. Maybe like, I see what you were going for. And somewhere along the way, <laughs> somebody at it, like it could have been you, like you just like got lost your vision or I really think there's there's value to be found in most things. And some of it is value in a more hypothetical way. Like, <laughs> this is a hypothetical value. There's no value to be had in this now. Now, all that being said, I don't hate these books. So I will probably try and play devil's advocate a little bit. Um, although I do agree with many of the larger criticisms that we've talked about the past few episodes. Yeah. So when you mention those nine pages of notes, usually when you and I do, let's say, pre-production for, for one of our episodes, we usually have a page, page and a half of just kind of bullet point notes of like, these are the things we want to cover. These are, you know, kind of the breakdown of, you know, the first block, we'll talk about this second block, we'll talk about that. Uh, yeah, like you say, this is nine pages of mostly paragraphs that I've written. <laughs> yeah, this isn't this isn't just like, you know, bullet point three words. This is like prose, you know, it's like full on <laughs> pages of of text. Yeah. So, um, so we'll talk about and again, we'll see how much fits into one episode versus two episodes. We'll see where we get before uh, we run out of time slash my voice gives out. Um, so we're going to talk about what I think we should keep from the original novel, um, what I think we should just drop from the original novel, um, and then get into you know some changes I would make to the framing device and the story to kind of um, help this thing be all that it can be, I guess. All right, so let's dive in. Okay, so what will we keep from The Name of the Wind? So the first thing I think, and this is kind of the the central promise of the book, what it wants to be, I think it ultimately fails at this idea, but it wants to be a deconstruction of the classical fantasy epic hero narrative. Um, I mean, that's kind of what it says on the back of the on the back of the the book, right? The blurb is all these legends about Kvothe and, oh, but now you're going to hear the real story. Um, the problem with how Name of the Wind approaches that deconstruction is that there's no real deconstruction. Um, so in the framing device, the, you know, this is, you know, the, the quote unquote present day story of Kvothe telling his, um, you know, life story to the chronicler. Uh, he tells us all, you know, all the legends, he kind of bullet point lists them off, um, all the legends about the things that Quoth did. Um, and then in the main story, you know, his kind of retelling of his memoir, um, we hear about those things just basically as they were, you know, he says, you know, oh, I, you know, I slept with the sex goddess Florian and lived to tell the tale. And that's the legend. And then you get to that part in, um, in wise man's fear. And it's like, oh, he just slept with the sex goddess Florian and lived to tell the tale. There's no twist there. Um, you know, a twist might be that, you know, oh, it's this epic sounding thing, but it turned out to not be so epic. Or it sounded like a really normal thing, but turned out to be super epic. It's just there's no deconstruction. So an example of 
how deconstruction of these kind of fantasy tropes works when it's done well. Uh, an example from um, the Game of Thrones TV show, I think this incident that I'm about to describe, we haven't hit in the books yet, but doesn't matter. Uh, you've, you saw it on the show. It was in one of the uh, last episodes of the previous season where we're flashing back to young Ned Stark in Robert's Rebell Rebellion. And um, we've known this legend about Ned Stark that during Robert's Rebellion, he defeated Sir Arthur Dane, the Sword of the Morning, who was at the time known to be the greatest swordsman in all of Westeros. And the legend is that Ned Stark defeated uh, Sir Arthur Dane in single combat, which great. He's, you know, he beat the, the greatest swordsman in the land. But then when we actually see it happening, um, the reality is that Ned's friend, Howland Reed, stabbed Dane in the back after um, Sir Arthur Dane literally just kicked the shit out of Ned and Howland and like six of their buddies, <laughs> like, like just like a hot knife through butter. He just wasted them. Um, so that's the real story is that, you know, he got stabbed in the back um, just as he was about to win. Um, so that deconstructs the myth making um, because we see that, oh, the real, real war isn't this honorable, noble thing. Um, it tells us something about the characters because all of a sudden Ned Stark, who we've been led to believe was this honorable, honest guy, you know, honorable to a fault that, you know, he wasn't very quick to correct the record on what went down in his fight with Sir Arthur Dane. He let people talk about, you know, how he did it, um, and it gives us a why as to why these myths get made and sustained in the world of um, Song of Ice and Fire. It is Ned Stark essentially allowed that myth to promulgate because he had a reputation to protect. And he probably thought it was advantageous for all the people uh, that, you know, <laughs> were maybe sitting on the sidelines or maybe thinking about uh, fighting against him to think that he was the greatest swordsman in all the land. Um, but it also shows us that some parts of the myth are true. Sir Arthur Dane was the greatest swordsman in the land. So just in that simple little story there, uh, Martin does all this deconstruction. He first, he tells us a cool story about beating the greatest swordsman. And then he shows us another cool, so, cool story about how the swordsman got really beat. And, you know, when you look at the difference between those, you see, you learn a lot about the characters and the world. If this was Patrick Rothfuss, it would be the legend is that Quoth beat the greatest swordsman in all the land, and then we would see the reality and, yeah, Quoth just beat the greatest swordsman in all the land, and probably would look even cooler doing it than you thought. Um, and meanwhile, other townspeople stopped to remark, what a great swordsman Quoth was. Um, so that, I think, is, the, is kind of the biggest structural problem with The Name of the Wind and, and then Wise Man's Fear, is that... We're promised this deconstruction, but what we get is just the same old kind of like over-the-top wish fulfillment, myth-making. Everything ends up being just as cool as you thought it was going to be. Um, and even and and in the kind of the, the the central story, you have characters falling over themselves to praise Quoth and tell him how awesome he is in the moment. Um, and I also don't think that Rothfuss really understands how like myths are made and sustained. So the example I'm going to give is that um, early in the framing device, you know, when Quoth's list listing off his, his kind of like list of, you know, names, I'm, you know, Quoth the Arcane. And um, one of those kind of nicknames is Six String. Um, so, okay, that's just in the list. But then later on in the main story, we kind of get the story of how he got this nickname. 
Um, and the story is, so at this point in Crow's life, he's kind of um, working as, you know, he's playing in bar, you know, playing the lute in bars at night to make money for tuition. All right. Um, and we get a scene described in great detail of how in the middle of this incredibly complex song, because everything he does has to be incredibly complex and something no one else could do, but he breaks a string, but manages to finish the song. He manages to kind of improvise his way through it and finish the song even with a broken string. And in this, you know, particular world, lutes have seven strings and he was down to six. Um, so there's a couple problems with that. Number one, most music audiences um, have no idea how many strings are on any particular instrument. You know, they're not saying, oh, that's a seven string lute and he's now he's playing six. Most people, if pressed, could maybe tell you how many strings are on a guitar. And that's probably because Bon Jovi said a loaded six string on my back in Wanted Dead or Alive. Like it's that's that's something that's like so ingrained in our popular culture. Most people could tell you how many strings are on a guitar. Um, so in this world, I mean, maybe a nickname like Broken String would maybe fit better because people probably weren't keeping count. It's just it's a detail that why do the people in Quote's world know how many strings are on a lute and care? Secondly, um, and I think this is because Patrick Rothfuss is not a musician and probably didn't bother to talk to any musicians as he was writing his book, but breaking a string and finishing a song is not some miraculous thing for a musician to do. Um, I perform in front of audiences fairly regularly. Occasionally you break a string on stage, you make it to the end of the song and then you switch guitars. It's, it's, this is such a common thing happening that most instruments are even designed so that if a string breaks, the instrument stays relatively in tune. So you can just kind of muddle through to the end of the song. This is not some miracle that he performs like, ah, I broke the string and didn't just, you know, collapse into tears on stage and, and, you know, have to have to be dragged away. Um, and this would also, you know, that would be especially true in kind of the vaguely defined pre-industrial world of, you know, the King Killer Chronicles where strings are made of essentially animal gut. So they're much more likely to break. This would be something people saw multiple times a night. If you're going to an inn to see a bunch of musicians, time people are going to be breaking strings left and right. It's not something that you're going to walk away from that night of drinking and carousing and seeing musicians and be like, man, how about that one guy who broke a string? Let's go home and talk about it and talk about the legend of the man who broke a string. I mean, it's such a common occurrence that breaking the string and playing through, it's like, but Rothfuss treats it and the characters in his world treat it like you're finishing the Indianapolis 500 with three flat tires and an engine fire. Like this is such a common thing and an expectation for a mu musician to do, to just, you know, something went wrong with your equipment, you're making it to the end of the song. Um, and I think that there's a the deeper part here about this myth-making thing that I don't think he understands and that I actually think is kind of harmful and poisonous is – it shows such a deep disrespect for all the characters in his world that aren't Quoth, because it assumes that these people, that their lives are apt, that they are so boring, that they see something that is the least bit interesting. And the very next day, the rumor mill has just been going on this thing. 
that, oh, you know, he now all of a sudden now he's developing a reputation because their lives are so boring. They have nothing else to talk about. They have no other stories to tell each other about their day. Um, it's just, it's all just this stuff that's focused on Kvothe and it's, and that people are that interested in his life <laughs> that, um, to come up with these myths and to come up with these nicknames, like it would be like, it would be like if everybody in your office decided that your new nickname would be five and 20 for that one time you stayed until 20 after five to finish your report. Like that it's some that by just doing the basic elements of your job that everyone is like, well, this guy's a bit basically a legend so much so that we have to give him a new name. Um, so, but I do think that maybe Rothfuss could have taken this a little further and maybe done something a little bit interesting where like there is something obsessive about this culture that they love giving each other weird nicknames and building up legends about each other. Like that's just the quirk of their little, of the little world that he's built. Um, you know, so that you would be like Andrew Tamer of cats, long haired metal of the power, like that we would just come up with these grandiose nicknames for each other based on completely mundane, normal, everyday things. And if that was the way the whole world worked and every character was dragging around this long list of like, like vaguely epic accomplishments, you know, um, you know, like, um, Brian of the 15% tip, like it, that would kind of be an interesting world, but he doesn't do that. It's just, Quoth is the only one who gets this treatment because he's this overblown wish fulfillment uh, Mary Sue. So that's the first thing <laughs> that I would yeah. change. Yeah, I mean, I think that as far as, you know, this is what, what you want to keep is the deconstruction. And deconstruction is big in genre fiction. And really, I mean, people out there get this recent thing. But I mean, the first Game of Thrones book came out in the 90s, man. Like, it yeah. is not this, like, brand new trend. And it was not the first one to do this. No. I mean, even there's a lot of Wheel of Time, which is held up as like the next big fantasy series. I was like, Lord of the Rings, begot Wheel of Time, begot Game of Thrones. And it's like, even that has a lot of like, eh, we're going to deconstruct some of this stuff. You know, it's not as maybe to the same degree. And even someone like Sanderson, who has, I think, has a reputation being a little more traditional when it comes to writing. Uh, there's a lot of deconstruction himself. I mean, the character of Kelsey or Mistborn. You know, as you recently read, like, kind of makes you wonder if uh, not the not the most epic hero you might want saving you because you might he might actually kill you based on your blood. Uh, so I think that the problem here is, like you said, it's it's the it's what you're it's the expectation, it's the setup. If he just would have wrote this book as sort of like pure sort of pulpy wish fulfillment fun, okay, but he sets it up as you know a deeper uh, a deconstruction of what we're used to in our fantasy myth. And it's like, but you didn't actually, so it's like, it's not delivering on a promise, which I think is a bigger problem than actually just doing it. Right. It's, it, it fails to deliver on that deconstruction promise. And, and I think that, you know, again, the Mistborn series is a great example of a way to do this right, deconstructing the myth building because, so at this point in the story that I'm reading is it's several years after the first book where Kelsier has died. And we are really starting to see the legend and, literally a church build up around him, but we're hearing this from the point of view of characters who actually knew him. And you can kind of hear their internal monologue about like, ah, that's not really how that happened. Or um, should we really be building this guy up to be such a legend because he was kind of an asshole? But in 
King Killer, it's just all all from you know Quoth's perspective, and we never get the sense that any of these nicknames are undeserved or inaccurate, or um, you know that or that Quoth is maybe not all the man he's cracked up to be, which is what you get in you know better told stories here. So yeah, so I'd like it to deliver on the promise of deconstructing the mythologizing. And so a big part of my rebuild is based on refocusing on that deconstruction. Um, And in one of the reviews I read, uh, and we'll link it in the show notes, it's on a site called Ferret Brain written by a guy named Dan H. He uses a line that kind of says, this is kind of the promise of the book. And that is by chasing legends, Quoth becomes a legend. You know, he's he's looking for the for the Chandrian who generally only exist in legend, but he, because he wants revenge for killing his family. Um, so he has to chase down the legends to find the truth and to, you know, then get his revenge. And in the process, he does all these things that kind of make him into a legend. Like that's kind of the shape that the book seems like it wants to take in the first third. And then, of course, does none of it. He just goes to school and just dicks around with his friends and like refuses to make a move on his girlfriend. Um, So I think that is, so focusing on that, chasing legends, becoming a legend. Um, So I'm kind of casting him less as your Elder Scrolls character who just maxed out all the skills trees to um, being essentially like a fantasy Indiana Jones. Like his... The motivating force of his kind of career as an adventurer is to sort out the myth from the fact so that he can find the facts that he needs to find and get his revenge on the Chandrian. Um, So as that quest kind of takes him around exploring the world, learning new things, going on adventures to find the next scrap of information, um, to confront the next, you know, mythical monster that everybody thought was fake, but oh no, it's actually real and much scarier rather than the way we did it with the dragon in the first book. Like, no, dragons are real, but they're really just kind of cute. Um, Drunk cow creatures. <laughs> so um, so my the, 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 the tagline that I thought of is all the legends are true except his. So we're going to see that he uncovers the myths of his world, finds the truth in them. And then meanwhile, a bunch of other stories are told about him that maybe aren't true. Um, So to get into the nitty gritty of, you know, outside of the broad scale of, all right, we're going to focus in on deconstructing the myths. He deconstructs some myths in his world and we see how the myths around him get built. Got it. Uh, So let's get into some details. So I still like the, even though I hate the name, Adima Rue the traveling minstrels. I like him starting out as that because I think that the, the bard Dungeons and Dragons class doesn't get a lot of like play in fantasy literature as kind of the central character. So I think this is interesting. And I think that the connection between that kind of bard minstrel um, job connects well with like storytelling and myth building and folklore. So he's going to come to the table already steeped in the mythology and folklore of his culture because that's kind of his job. Um, and, and it also makes for a good narrative device because he can then explain things because he would know it. Like, oh, yeah, well, this is the story of this because my dad's – and it does that a little in the books. Like, my dad has a song about that and I knew it because, well, it's a, it's a good way to, you know, explain – do world, world building for the reader. Yes. Um, which is, uh, brief aside, one of my – a big problem with me about how I feel about 
name the wind, especially as someone who cares about that sort of thing, is that we're two books in. And I really feel like I don't know much about the world in general. Yes, I'm, I have. We'll a... get there, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it does. It gives it gives your your main character already has a connection to the mythology and the folklore of the world. So we, and he's already going to start with some things of like. Oh, you know, maybe that story about the witch was maybe that was actually about the Chandrian. That starts a phase of research to figure out where he is. Um, and again, it gives us we can hear we can have both tell the stories to us, the reader, so we can learn a little bit of the mythology too. Um, the magic system, I think, is for the most part fine. We can keep that. Um, I especially like the distinction between the more uh, sciency sympathy magic and the more intuitive naming and. We're actually going to use that as, as a distinct plot point later on, as opposed to just having it in there. I think maybe we would want to streamline it a little bit. Um, you know, sigildry and medicine and sympathy and artificing and like what's magic and what isn't. It's a little too jumbled and a little bit unnecessarily complicated in some places. Okay. World building. Um, <laughs> so I think you're right. And that's a very common complaint that like you read all of these pages of a very slow paced book. And yet I don't know what the architecture looks like in these cities. I don't know what the level of technology is in these cities. I don't, you know, there's a scene later on where they sit down near a radiator in a bar. And it's like radiators. Wait, that's like, now we're getting into like 1800s technology on earth. But then in other scenes, it's like a crossbow is the most advanced weapon anybody has access to. And I'm not saying you need to plot all these things out for me, but I need some sense of it. Um, just for consistency's sake, so that I can kind of infer some things about the world. Um, and it's also very consistent in, inconsistent in the way it deals with magic. Because, so this is a world where there is at least one central magic college that supports the economy of a big part of a major city. And that admits, I'm guessing, dozens if not hundreds of students every term. Um, if that's the case... You have to assume that, you know, you're going to have the same number of competent uh, wizards in, you know, in, in areas around these magic schools that we would have doctors and lawyers in in our modern world. And because it seems like there are a lot of people getting into magic college. And so this idea that then you run into other characters who are like completely amazed whenever they see anything remotely magical. It's like, nah, dude, this is kind of there's a ton of wizards in your world. And much of your technology is built on magic. You know, they talk about um, sympathy lamps as kind of an analog for electric light. And those are just, that's just a thing you can buy in a shop. But then other characters are completely mystified by it. And then like, there's a time when he's getting like harassed by some street punks and he like does a little trick and they're like, oh, he called down lightning. He must be some kind of miraculous wizard. It's like, this would be, this would just be how people ended bar fights would be with magic. That's how common it would be. But then- Rothfuss doesn't really keep that consistency going. So let's get that consistent. Let's actually extrapolate out. If you're going to have this many people involved in Magic College, how many wizards are on the street in any given time? Do they all go and filter out into the world so that now every town has a wizard? Or is it like doctors and lawyers today where we're just overflowing with them? And then what about the people who get 90% of the way there and get the magic skills but don't quite graduate? I mean, in in today's world, those people don't, you know, they don't become like halfway doctors, but they still have most of the skills of a doctor. And like, there are people out there like that and you know, just building that consistency. Um, also the level of technology, 
We talked about that. It's just very unclear. Um, you know, some places have plumbing. Other places feel like, you know, they haven't figured out chimneys yet. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, you could have very disparate levels of technology in your world, but you, then you need to start to explain why this town seems to have a, you know, uh, 10th century, you know, kind of technology and economy. And then this place seems like it could maybe be even the late 1700s. Um, similarly, um, and this is a trap that a lot of just kind of junior sci-fi or fantasy writers fall into. It's that they really want to have these vastly different human cultures. Um, in King Killer, it's the ADEM, the kind of the magic ninjas who have a matriarchal society and that half of their communication is done through sign language. Um, they're all built up around this warrior culture and this kind of warrior spirituality. Um, and that's a thing that a lot of fantasy writers like to do. But if you're going to do that, if you're going to have this vastly different culture, they need to be separated from everybody else by more than just a couple days walk, <laughs> which is what they turn out to be. Like, so they're trading with the rest of the world. They have great knowledge of the rest of the world. They're close enough to the rest of the world. They're not geographically isolated. How is it that they're this great mysterious culture? Like, Put a mountain range between them and the rest of the world. like, And that's why it's so weird. But it's like they're essentially as separated from each other as like France is separated from Germany in our world. <laughs> and, you know, and they're going to have this completely different culture that is, oh, now it's matriarchal and it's, they have a t completely different language. And it's uh, it, not only a different language, but like it's partial sign language. It's just it's just kind of hacky and weird. Um, uh, and that leads to, again, it's consistency. It's, it's coming up with a world that's consistent and predictable so that we know where the stakes are and we know when to care for our characters. Um, how does society work? What is the role of women in this society in these books? Do you have any idea? I mean, it's, it's all over the place. You know, when I look at a character like Denna, I'm just like, okay. Versus a character like, uh, what's the girl's name? Who's like. Kind of likes him, but he's oblivious and then moves you on. You mean every girl? Every girl who kind of likes well, him? Well, yeah. Oblivious? Yeah, every girl. Um, so, okay. So she's like, there's- the, um, the, She's good at medicine. Oh, fella. Uh, fella, yeah. Yeah. Like, and there's so they're like dramatically different. And then you have, then you throw someone like Devi in the mix and it's like, I don't know what what we're doing here. Like, everyone seems to be different pages. And like, also, once again, the respective ages of those women, I'm just like, are they 15? Are they 30? Like, I don't really know. Yeah. I mean, the girls in school are young, but like- someone like Denna, it's like, okay, so she's clearly independent, but we met her early on in the story as like this like young girl on the caravan who I thought she was just like a throwaway character and turns out to be second most important character in the books, potentially. And so she's what, 14 and running around the world by herself? Well, like, I don't know. Yeah. And it's, and you know, like the distinction between Fella and Denna is kind of important because okay so here's what we know fella is allowed to go to magic school and apparently women are as well this is not unusual um it would appear that women are allowed and encouraged to get educated just as much as men in this society which would imply a certain level of female independence in this although world, no right? women professors are that i remember right yeah that's a good point um but there you know it's not um that would imply that at least in the professional world, there's not a lot of distinction of like women are not allowed to do this. But then Denna apparently 
um, talks about it like the only thing women can do is either be a musician or a prostitute. Um, and women apparently don't have much legal protection in this world because, again, to use Dana as the example, like she constantly has to skip town because her Johns are about to rape her or something. And the only way to prevent herself from being horrifically abused by these men is to change her identity and skip town. So is this a world where violence against women is totally legal? Are there cops? Do we have any idea? And again, I'm not necessarily saying that you can't tell a story that goes one way or the other, but you can either have your women who get, get to go to college or you can have your women who the only way they can survive is through the protection of, of men because the state doesn't support them and the economy doesn't support them. And if you're going to tr- if you're going to try to tell a class story about how that works and say, yes, these two things can exist at once. And for uh, a certain class of women in this society, yes, they have to live a life like Denna where they have no protection and no autonomy. Um, but for another class of women, they can go to magic school and, you know, me- you know, become a professional wizard you and that could be interesting but that's not what he does it's just when it's convenient to have girls in the school who can unlock certain doors for both there are girls in the school when we need a damsel in distress for him to chase after well now we're in a situation where women have no protection except for the protection that both can offer um so let's let's tighten that up. Let's decide what this you know how class and government even just government are there cops in this world because it's like when there's it, like paid strongmen like they, they, there's like people investigating things like when he gets in that fight with those guys that try to kill him there's some sort of investigation that happens because he ends up in court for it right which we don't get to hear about because apparently it has nothing to do with the story although endless you know details of walking from one side of campus to the other are uh crucial to the heart of the story apparently but but that's the thing is that you know we hear about when he's you know breaking into ambrose's apartment to steal a ring He's very afraid of getting kicked out of the university, but there's no mention in his mind of like, well, I also hope the cops don't find me. Um, yeah. But then there's also a king and there's taxes, but then you also get paid to be a part of the army. But then if you're getting paid to be a part of the army, but then there's also like dukes and barons and that's not how feudalism works. If you got dukes and barons, that means when there's a war, if you're an able-bodied man, guess what? You're joining the army. <laughs> Here's a sword. Um, it's just it's very inconsistent and it makes it very difficult to know what the stakes are at any given point because we know Den is in trouble um, with dangerous men, but we never get an explanation of like, why doesn't Quoth just take her over to the to the city watch and be like, this guy's beating her up. Like we don't get an explanation for that. We don't get an explanation for what the stakes are or what options are available to our characters at any given point. So I would tighten that up and make that a little bit more consistent. You don't need pages and pages and pages talking about the legal system, but you need at least need to understand that there is or isn't one. Uh, last thing that I know I would like to keep is, and actually one of my favorite parts of the book, too bad it's actually wrapped up in easily my least favorite part of all the books, is the Fae, the kind of alternate reality where uh, the Fae, the Fae creatures, the kind of you know magical beings live. Um, I thought was described in this really surreal and interesting way. And um, I like the way that the kind of hints you were getting of like the weirdness of fey culture and how they have their own little kind of society and rules. And um, 
even just the mechanics of their world are kind of interesting that like when you walk to the east, the sun comes up. When you walk to the west, the sun goes down. Like I'm like, ah, that's neat. I, I you know, um, and I also think that because the Fae seems to have this probably a connection to the big bad of the series, the Chandrian, like that's a place where we should spend more time and know more about and should have a stronger impact on the plot as opposed to a place where Quoth goes to um, Bang get out. taught how, yeah, get taught how to be awesome at sex by a literal centuries old sex goddess who then remarks uh, how amazing he is at sex even without her uh, instruction. So that's what I think we should keep. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, the framing device and setting up Quoth as a character. Um, but I think first we should uh, take a break for news. Well, wait, wait, wait. God damn it. <laughs> I had a major epiphany as we were reading through this. And I'm going to give my first – I'm but my, the whole time in thing this, you know, saying this up and I'm reading your notes and trying to get into the fugue state that you've been in to try and you know, get this all sorted. I've <laughs> <laughs> uh, been trying to figure out, okay, you know, like, like I said, answer the question, why do people like this so much? And I realized – as you're going through things that I didn't thought about, you know, and you've read reviews and stuff. And I, I, I have been pretty almost purposely at this point, because I knew you were doing it. Like I'm going to go in cold. Uh, <laughs> I realized that part of what keeps kept me in these books. And I think keeps people involved is that the first two books, really, they have the feel of the first quarter or half of a fantasy book in that. I always expect the explanations are coming. <laughs> and only when I have taken a step back, because it reads like that, like, okay, I don't know this now, but in a little bit, and that's what you have to do. Like, that's why a lot of people, like, example, Shay can't, she doesn't like that style. She doesn't like that drop in the middle of the action. You know, it's hard. It's a hard, it's a hard balance to strike when you're writing science fiction and fantasy is that you don't want a narrative dump at the beginning of a story, but you also have to sort of teach someone about a new world you've created. How do you do that? Well, that's always a good mark of a, a good science fiction or fantasy story. If they can walk that line and, you're, I'm used to, as a reader of those things, just going with it for a while, right? Like, yeah, I, I don't know what that word means yet, but I'm going to figure it out by context or someone's going to explain it at some point. Or I'm not quite sure of the religion here, but I'm going to get there. And that always feels like what's coming in these books. <laughs> and only realizing after book two of, of three, potentially, this isn't coming, is it? <laughs> no. There's no explanation not, coming. No. And uh, again, I don't, I don't, I generally don't like exposition. I don't like characters explaining to each other things that each of them already know about the world. I generally don't like that. And some authors can do that very well. I, I think, you know, George R. R. Martin does a great job of um, giving you the information about the world that the characters know and limiting it to what they know um, and only bringing it up when it makes sense for that character to be thinking about that particular historical footnote. He's very good at that. Um and also you have a sense that he has most of that figured out in his brain and had it figured out mostly before he put pen to paper. Whereas when you're reading Rothfuss, you really get the idea that as he's writing, he gets to a chapter and you're like, oh, you know what would be really cool? If we had a cool name for the king, what are we going to call him? The penitent king. Yeah. Yeah. What is that? I don't know what that means. It doesn't matter, but it sounds really cool. And we're just going to go with that. <laughs> I heard that word in Last Crusade. It, sounds, it must be really cool, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I, and I agree with you. And I was thinking a lot about this recently uh, because when I, you know, we're going to, we're comparing fantasy series in a lot of ways. When I think about Joe Abercrombie's, Abercrombie's uh, first law world he's been making and working on, he's doing another trilogy uh, set in it. 
And I have some complaints about that series. And one of the complaints is some of these same world building issues. But throughout the books I've read, A, that's not so much the focus. Like he frames it in a way that the characters and the deconstruction of fantasy tropes are forefront where the plot and the world aren't quite as important. Although there's that slow, gradual, like, okay, I'm, I'm six books in and there's still a lot of things I don't understand, but I feel like every book I get a little bit and that's okay. Right. But like, I feel like in this book, it's like, I don't feel like I learned much from stage one to stage, you know, four at the end of, you know, if we're saying dividing up into twos, right. Right. And there's vital information that's missing. It's not, I mean, yeah, it's, is it a minor complaint that I don't know what the architecture looks like and have no sense of the architecture? (laughs) Yeah, that's a minor complaint, but there, it is important to know how much danger is Denna in? Mm-hmm. Is her skipping town, you know, to fleeing guys, is that just kind of her nature and just she's doing that? Or is that because literally that's the only protection she has in the world? Um, that's important to understand, to understand the peril that she may or may not be in. Yeah. I mean, like when you described that possibility, that had never occurred to me. I was like, she's just a weirdo who's really flighty and doesn't like a commitment. That's how I interpreted that. And you obviously interpreted it like this was her only way to be autonomous as a person. And it's like, whoa, that's a huge difference. She explains it in one of the – I think she gives it – she gives kind of a first level explanation of like, um, you know, I kind of, you know, I kind of, you know, hook up with these guys to kind of, you know, so that I have somebody to walk around town with and have some protection. And then when they start to get too handsy, I skip town. Yeah. It's like so – and it's like, all right, that sounds like a little bit of – um, I mean, it does have some shades of like, you know, nice guyism a little bit, but yeah. it also, it's like, but then she also talks about, um, you know, later in the book when it's revealed that she's probably a prostitute and this is kind of her way of creating boundaries between her and her customers. It's like, okay. But also it's like, all right, is that how a sex worker in this world has to create boundaries with her customers essentially by skipping town when things go wrong or, or not. This is a, appears to be a, a civilization with with a thriving sex industry because the word whore is on nearly every other page. Characters throw it out all the time. Uh, but it's just that level of consistency. I don't understand what danger my characters are in or how much of what they're doing is because of society versus their own choices versus those sorts of things. And those things don't really come into play until it's convenient for the plot. So, so we would tighten that up, I think. Yeah. Okay. On to some news. So tell me what's been happening in the broader world while I've had my head down in this flight of fancy. Well, there's been uh, some good things and some bad things. Let's start with a good one for once. Uh, there's <laughs> been a new Game of Thrones trailer and we're getting, what, two or three weeks away? And it looks pretty awesome. Not going to lie. Yep. I yeah. am just super excited. I think that from the from what we're getting what we want to happen uh, as opposed to what maybe... <laughs> we're going to rail against here in our episode, but I think we're finally getting some, that convergence of the story that it's been a long one, but we, we we knew was coming and it's happening. Yes. (laughs) We are building to a conclusion. Yeah. Uh, So that's, that's really cool. And I think that I'm excited to to dig into the season. I'm sure we're going to have a lot to talk about with that once we get rolling here. And I should point out in the theme of our larger, not only are we building to a conclusion, but we are building to more or less the conclusion that was promised us in the first chapter of the first book. There's going to be a big war with some ice monsters. <laughs> yeah. Um, and 
I have to say, I, I a couple months ago, I think I mentioned this before, but I mentioned a couple months ago that I had read one of those like Reddit or 4chan like descriptions of the season. And I was like, ah, these things are never correct. I'm never going to, you know, have to worry about this being a true spoiler, right? And then I, I, as like set pictures came out and like episode and trailers cap, and I'm like, oh no, I actually read the real one. Like <laughs> this is this is actually what's going to happen. But if it's what happens, I'm okay with it because it's pretty awesome. You know, we've waited long enough. <laughs> it's true. Uh, and then there's the bad things, <laughs> including that the Han Solo film seems to be in dire straits. <laughs> oh yes, yes it does. So, yeah. so the directors have left. <laughs> They're gone. Yeah. Yeah. And it's starting to sound not only did they leave, but they were they were asked to leave. Yeah. Uh, and it, we're, we're pretty far into the production yeah. of it. Uh, I believe they were three weeks away from finishing filming. Oof. Like you have we to question at that point. Summer, but Ugh. yeah. So on the bright side, we're getting Ron Howard to direct sure. Star Wars movie, which is weird. Never thought I would have said that you know, 10 years ago. <laughs> well, apparently he was, I read somewhere that he was on, um, he was tapped to direct, I think Phantom Menace before G- George Lucas decided that he wanted to direct it. Really? Yeah. Because they had actually worked together on American Graffiti and Ron Howard is generally understood to be a very sure bet in Hollywood. Yeah. I mean, you look at that dude's resume and there are very few, um, clunkers on on his list but yeah i mean great ron howard um sure but it's also like he's coming in at the last three weeks plus reshoots and then maybe overseeing the editing how much more more of a stamp yeah. can he put on this it's very unclear but hopefully uh, there was some yeah. good stuff for him to work with i don't know so yeah i think and i do think it was important for them to get somebody in at the editing because as i'm kind of piecing the story together so um phil lord and chris miller who did the, the Lego movie and um, a bunch of great television shows like uh, Last Man on Earth, Clone High, um, are known for a comedic style <laughs> and also like to, you know, have a lot of room for their actors to improvise. Um, and apparently Lucasfilm hired, hired them to give the movies a comedic tone, which they interpreted as make a comedy, which apparently... Um, you know, they've been fighting with Kathleen Kennedy about this the entire time. Uh, so thinking about, okay, so they've been doing a lot of improv and, you know, letting the ca- letting the actors, you know, play with the script. The editing is really where that's going to matter because, you know, they got a bunch of good takes on what was written and then some good takes on what was improvised and firing them now um, so that they don't have a hand in the editing so that maybe you can edit this thing into more like the movie you wanted it to be. Seems like what Lucasfilm is trying to do. But I think it's kind of stupid to hire these guys who they have a style. This is what they do. It's not like the Coen brothers where you're like, Ooh, are we getting big Lebowski Coen brothers or are we getting Fargo Coen brothers or no country for old men (laughs) Coen brothers? You know, it's like, no, these guys, you know what you're getting. You hired them to, to, you know, because of who they are. And then they apparently made this movie in their style. You hired them to be Lord and Miller and then they were Lord and Miller. So you fired them for being Lord and Miller seems kind of strange, but it, it's very reflective of, I just saw today, uh, the first time Edgar Wright is starting to talk about him leaving Ant-Man, which I completely forgot about, uh, but how, and his quote is, I wanted to make a Marvel movie. Marvel didn't want to make an Edgar Wright movie. 
which is pretty much what people assume that like he has a very particular style. Yeah. And it's not it didn't work out how they wanted it to, and so they switched gears. So I mean I think that it's a weird double edged sword for me because I'm excited to see directors with styles be making blockbuster genre movies. I think that's a good thing for the industry. I just you know, I but if they're not gonna actually get to be able to make them <laughs> Yeah, that is not a good thing for the industry. So I, I mean, but it's also like, don't set them up for failure, right? Like it's, it's like, it's like when you're when you have two friends who are dating and you like this person, you like that person, but they're just not good for each other. You know what I mean? It's like this is a bad situation. I like both of them, but maybe they just should never try to make this arrangement in, from the beginning. And that's kind of how I feel about you know this situation and you know the Edgar Wright Ant Man situation, where it's just like mm, this was just a bad a bad idea from the beginning. It, it, if if the studio is set on making a consistent sort of style, like, I mean, honestly, a Lord Miller Hansel movie doesn't really sound, I didn't know who was directing it really or what their connections were, but after watching the Lego movie for the first time only recently and seeing that those, I mean, there's been some stranger, I mean, John Favreau has some funny, like weird movies out there, but like, I don't know why they would have. Yeah. Yeah. I just felt like, cause there, seem- there's comedy and then there's funny parts. Like the Marvel movies have a lot of funny parts. They aren't comedies. Right. Yeah, I think, I mean, honestly, I'm not terribly invested because I just kind of think that a Han Solo movie is just conceptually a bad idea. I mean, Han Solo's character arc is he starts out as an asshole and then becomes a good person over the course of three movies. He's a smuggler and a rogue, and then he finds his heart and becomes, you know, a valuable part of the rebellion who cares about more than himself. That's a nice, tidy character arc. What I don't want to see is how uh, what's probably a nice guy turns into a rogue. Like, just it's just his arc in reverse is what it feels like the Han Solo origin story is. I just it's I'm not interested in how he became a pirate. I'm I'm really not. I mean, I I would like to see him and Lando get into some pirate stuff, but that's more like I don't want to see like Han Solo in his teen years. I want to see like Han Solo like three years before A New Hope. Like when he's like, when he's established as a thing and like how him and Lando have a falling out, like, that's what I'd like to see. That's all I want to see. <laughs> I don't need an origin. Yeah. And like for my, you know, sort of like the old EU Han Solo stuff, I won't get too deep into it, but a lot of it was more so that you didn't see teenage Han Solo. It was like Han Solo on random crazy adventures with Chewie. And it's like, okay, right. this is fine. And like, yeah. or, you know, he had a more serious trilogy in there that I really like actually. Uh, and it sort of laid the groundwork for, he's always sort of been on that line of like, sticks his neck out, do some good. Cause he's act, you know, he's always been a good guy at heart, but kind of gets the raw end of the deal every time. That's why when he, when you see him at this point, he's just been burned one too many times and he's lost all his whatever, which like you said is a reversal in some ways, but it worked for me. But I, yeah, I, I'm curious. I mean, he's not supposed to be a teenager in this movie, is he? Uh, I mean, I feel like I don't. I don't know if it's teenage Han Solo, but it's definitely young Han Solo and he's got a mentor and I'm pretty sure this is set up as an origin story, not just, I mean, I would like to see like, yeah, like just adventures in space, like Dukes of Hazard, but it's the Millennium Falcon. It's just like, <laughs> you know, like, you know, it's just, it's just Han and Chewie up to no good and outrunning the space cops. Like, ah, I'll, I'll watch two hours of that, but I don't need to see how he, how he went from a young street tough to the best pilot in the galaxy. Uh, no. Yeah. All right. I mean, I guess we'll see what the continued media circuses around this i'm sure we're just getting started <laughs> and other other terrible news your favorite comic now is getting uh just what you always wanted another adaptation 
yeah, they're making a Watchmen TV show. Um, Damon Lindelof, who worked on Lost, which something else I hate. Um, His list is bad, by the way. If you look at all the things he's written, it's like, ooh, none of these things are good. Yeah, I mean, he's he's been involved in some interesting things. But honestly, no, if you're doing anything with the Watchmen that isn't just printing the comic again, you can go fuck yourself. Just fuck right off. I don't nothing. It's it was perfect in its original state. Anything you do dilutes it. It only works as a comic. That's mm. I mean, Zack Snyder basically filmed the comic and it still didn't work. Just don't (laughs) just leave this thing alone, man. Yeah, that's Mm. always my opinion is like I I don't I don't hate the Zack Snyder Watchmen movie. I know you have stronger feelings against it. But like you said, he basically filmed the majority of it like frame by frame. And like you said, it doesn't come off the same way. So if you can't do it that way, not saying it's impossible to do it a different way and get the get the right things across, but I don't know. Well, it's just – and it seems like the more we popularize Watchmen and the more we put it out in front of the general audience, I see more and more people thinking Rorschach's the hero of this thing, which is not the way it's supposed to go. And I don't need people taking that message away. Because he's kind of like the Punisher, but like, you know, crazy, crazier. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I, it, it's definitely true. Uh, also, on the what the fuck are you doing? Please stop. No, uh, we got some more, some juicy details on Sony's Marvel Universe. Ugh. Is that despite our musings, we found out that Venom is in the same universe as the upcoming Homecoming. But. But not the MCU. If right. you watch the interview where, I forget her name, Amy Pascal. Pascal. Yeah, Pascal. Pascal. Uh, her and Kevin Feige are in a, doing an interview together, and she said that, and Kevin Feige was just like, what? "What?" Like he just looked like so confused that this was happening. Like yeah. I was, I did not sign up for this. Uh, and also that Carnage is going to be the villain of the Venom movie. All right, of the Venom movie. Okay, I understand. I'm probably going to break some hearts, but fuck Carnage. He's awful. I think that Carnage is. I like him as a villain because it only in the context of Spider-Man and Venom. And their history and what they are is that like Venom's a bad dude, but you know his whole like anti-hero kind of whatever. Where Cletus Cassidy is a serial killer who gets given he basically like a Joker, you know, like like he gets given super intense superpowers, and he's not just like Doctor Doom or someone who thinks they're doing the right thing or is really greedy. He's like he's legitimately a locked up serial killer. And to me, there's like a certain appeal that like that's sort of a different style of villain, See. but. Uh, but I don't like that kind of villain because at that point, they're just a force of nature and they're not interesting. You know, a, the unstoppable serial killer who has, um, you know, and, and that's the other thing. Carnage, it's, you know, he's not like John Doe from seven where he's got, where he's driven by some larger project or ethos. He just kills because he likes to kill, which is the most kind of like, you know, like juvenile interpretation of, you know, a psychopath. So it's like he, his motivation, like he doesn't really have an interesting motivation. You know, the old canard of um, every villain should be the hero of their own story. Like at least Venom has this kind of like, he's got this weird complex around like protecting innocence and getting revenge on people who are mean to innocent people. Like, all right, that's at least something. But Carnage is just like, I kill because I'm killing. I'm killing, killing, killing. It's it's just, yeah. it's, it's to me, it's Carnage is no more interesting than a tornado or an earthquake. Well, but I think that, that that's what I mean about in the context of Spider-Man and Venom and their history is that like, 
because in most times where he shows up, it's usually Spider-Man and Venom that have to work together to stop him. So it's more about them than it is about him. Sure. He is kind of a force of nature. So that's what I kind of like. I do think that you're allowed to have some stupid villains as long as you have good villains too. Because there are some people out there who are legitimately like that. And that's okay to have that be sure. not the most compelling villain in the world. Right. But as long as they exist in an atmosphere with compelling villains, I think it's okay to have it. Uh, but yeah, so – but to have him be the initial – like he's something that I think works in a context that you can build up over time. You don't just make him the first villain in a movie. Just like I wouldn't make Venom the first villain in a, a first Spider-Man movie. Like if he was the Venom villain in Homecoming, I'd be like this is stupid. Like it doesn't make any sense. You know, I don't know. Also, we're getting fucking Craven and Mysterio movies. Apparently, I. You know what? Honestly, <laughs> um, a Craven movie where you know that he's actually they made him into an interesting character. He's That's a character true. with interesting motivations and an interesting history and. I could at least be interested in seeing kind of an anti-hero movie about him. Here's my pitch for a Craven movie, all right? Because I'm, I'm, I'm picking up – I'm following what you're – well, at least what you're initially saying is that it's his perspective trying to hunt Spider-Man. Yes. That would be a cool movie. I would watch the shit out of that. Yes. But not Craven off doing something stupid that doesn't involve Spider-Man. Like, I don't know. I just I – don't, I don't buy it. Right. You spend the first act of the movie. He's a big game hunter. And we actually see him go on some like interesting hunts and, you know, exotic locations and you get some cool action scenes and establish him as very, very capable, but also maybe a little too obsessive. And then, you know, and then he gets home to New York and realizes that the only thing, the only real challenge that's left for him is Spider-Man. Yeah. And you wouldn't even reveal it takes place in the Spider-Man universe until the second act turn. Oh, that'd be cool. It'd be cool. Yeah. I'm with I mean, you'd know because it's Craven, but like, yeah, following him. And then again, it's that like interesting story about a relatively normal person responding to the presence of a superhero. Yeah. I could, I could watch that. Yeah. But I don't think that's what's going to happen. No, it's just going <laughs> to be dumb. It's just going to be another dumb movie. Uh, and the last bit of thing was that there's going to be an, another Avenger in the up next, the sequel to the next Spider-Man movie, uh, I guess Spider-Man prom or graduation, or I don't know, something, <laughs> but uh, that, but it's not going to be Tony Stark. So there's been a lot of speculation about who that might be, uh, because yeah, I guess well, they're really trying to make sure that this is grounded in the MCU, despite also well, connecting it to whatever. That leads into a much bigger conversation, which is which current Avengers survive uh, Infinity War. Uh, yeah, because exactly. contracts are running out and people are starting to look old. And uh, that's, I think that's a whole other conversation. But um, uh, yeah. So, <laughs> movies and villains in the MonsterVerse, they've announced <laughs> the other monsters in the next uh, Godzilla movie. And in case you were wondering whether or not they were going to like go a different direction with things, nope, it is Mothra, who you will remember is a giant moth. Uh, <laughs> Rodan, who you will remember, I believe, is a pterodactyl, right? Yeah. And King Ghidorah, who is a three-headed dragon. <laughs> but you know what? Honestly, you know what? I like movies that just say, fuck it. You liked it when my, when Godzilla fought those two monsters in the last movie? Guess what? We're doing again. All yeah, right, I, That's what I want to see. I am all in on this. Like, uh, when you, I didn't see the headline, so when you saw that, I was like, I was like, yes, yes, this is what I want. This is what I want from a Godzilla movie. <laughs> Crazy monsters fighting. It's all I want. Uh, and I guess, because Mothra is usually a good guy, right? Oh, most who knows? of the Godzilla movies. It doesn't matter. <laughs> who knows? <laughs> Plot, what is that? Like, come on. Uh, this movie did weird, by the way. Real weird. Um, yeah, so, but I, I'm, I'm cool with this because just, I don't know, seeing them as not being rubber suits is just exciting to me. Yeah. Um, 
So we get another another villain, not in the dark universe because you know public domain and all that. Uh, those dudes who made that show that some people like about that detective, you know, the British one, tall, skinny, curly haired, maybe has autism. I don't yeah, know. Sherlock. Yeah. Which Dracula. I enjoy. I enjoy yeah, Sherlock. I like Sherlock. Though. But uh, the guys who who basically revived that series are working on a Dracula series. So that's going to be terrible. <laughs> I mean, why is it going to be terrible? Okay. Well, first, uh, NBC took a crack at an ongoing um, prestige Dracula series two years ago. There's a reason it sounds like I'm making that up because nobody watched it. I've never heard of that ever. Yeah. No, that happened. Uh, it was about a young, sexy Dracula um, essentially coming to America, I think, in a in a appropriate time period. Uh, look, I just – I don't think this is going to work. I don't, I don't know how you do this without making him way too much of a hero. He should be a sympathetic villain. He shouldn't be a hero. And I think – I don't know how you make a TV show – where the main focus is the sympathetic villain the whole time. Plus, I, I really like the Dracula character, but there's not a lot to him that can really survive, you know, hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of ongoing stories. Whereas at least Sherlock Holmes, it's like every, you know what? Every episode is a new case. He's solving a new case. I want to see that. Is every episode of Dracula going to be he's seducing another woman who looks like his dead wife? I don't know. I mean, maybe the one potentially interesting thing I could see is if it's a limited series and each episode is a different time period. Episode mm-hmm. one is the 1800s. Episode two is the 1920s. Episode three is the 70s. And, you know, that yeah. could be maybe neat, but I don't, I do not have faith here. Uh, I've got a pitch since we're about correcting and pitching tonight, apparently. Uh, let's just make it a, a direct sequel to Sherlock and have Benedict Cumberbatch that we find out that. Dracula just was Sherlock. Because <laughs> I'm sure they just loved uh, him as he, he brings all the ladies. I don't know if we can really in. connect those dots. <laughs> Come on, we can get there. <laughs> I mean, that would explain that, you know, that that might explain the, uh, you know, the faked death at the end of season two. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, the last thing of uh, monster-related things is that they are, have announced they are planning a Supernatural spinoff. Uh, starring, focusing on um, the actress Kim Rhodes, who plays Jodie Mills on Supernatural. Uh, and I'm going to I'm gonna do a Supernatural canon catch-up here in the next few weeks, because I, I need to. It's, it's time. And I have to say, they tried to do a Supernatural spinoff two years ago called Supernatural Bloodlines. It was one of those, like, try to do an episode with, like, a backdoor pilot, and it was bad. So bad. Like, one of the worst episodes of television I've ever seen in my life. And they quickly jettisoned it because they realized it was bad but because they tried to just like introduce this like underbelly of chicago and these warring families of monsters and they threw out all the existing canon because even though in the first 10 seasons of the show changelings are gross and ugly because it's the cw now the main characters of changeling is all sexy and nice right of course of course uh but in real quickly in supernatural jody mills is a sheriff in a small town in wisconsin one of those Flyover states doesn't matter. Uh, and sorry for anyone who lives in Flyover state. And she basically her entire family dies in a monster attack very early on in the series. And she just kind of shows up every once in a while. Uh, eventually kind of become she's like the only probably like side character and woman who's been alive on the show for longer than two seasons. <laughs> uh, and she's just she's just really awesome. And uh, 
basically the show is about her training a new generation of monster hunters, including her adopted two daughters, one of which is a vampire, which is weird. Um, which sounds, I know you're, you're probably rolling your eyes and it sounds crazy, but like in the context of the show, she's one of my favorite characters and she's awesome. And especially have a CW show that's the main character is like a middle-aged woman is a break of the mold. <laughs> yeah. Fair. Uh, so I'm hoping that they're actually going to do this right. And I'm pretty excited for it. All right. Well, let's take a deep breath and dive back into uh, Rothfuss land, eh? Let's do it. So we talked about what we're going to keep. I'm going to do a quick little rapid fire thing about uh, what we're going to drop and then uh, move on to set up a little bit. And then I we're going to have to save a lot of this for another episode. <laughs> okay, so... What are we going to drop? Number one, uh, Kvothe is not 15 in our version. He is whatever the normal age to go to wizard college is because it makes no sense that Rothfuss would waste all this time telling us how young Kvothe is only to have no other characters remark on it. Like no one ever says, like none of his friends in wizard school are like, oh yeah, well, of course you don't know this because you're 16 and we're 20, you know, and, and that never happens. They're all equals when he gets there. Um, no one comments on like, you're too young to come to school. Like you would think that would be some obstacle that you would have to overcome. No, it's not. It's just it's just an excuse to talk about how great and more advanced he is. So we're not going to do that because it's a dead end. Um, I'm also getting rid of Denna because she's dumb. It's 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 she's a she's this perpetual damsel in distress who, especially in the second book, when Kvothe basically realizes that her like man is just like beating her all the time. He still decides he's going to go and like spend a bunch of time in fairyland banging the sex goddess and then go learn fantasy karate and then make his way back to see about Denna. It's and also because we know in the framing device that she's no longer in the picture and just because of the tone and general ickiness of everything else, we know she gets fridged at some point and that's bullshit. We got to stop doing that. So she's done. See, see part of me it, like and I said, kept thinking that there's something with Denna that I I can't quite get out of my head that she's more crucial to plot besides just being Fridge, that like almost that she's a secret villain or something. That's like the vibe I've been getting the whole time. And I just expected to see a little bit more of it or like more foreshadowing or something go happen. And it just seems like it just hasn't. So maybe I'm wrong. Well, and she just she's she's just a storyline dead end because look, dude, your parents were murdered by demons. You you're and then you get to magic school to learn where to find the information to fight the demons who killed your parents you're not going to be running around chasing after some girl that's just it doesn't make sense it feels like don't you care about the demons who murdered your family it's like uh, it's like why batman never really keeps a romantic lead right it just doesn't make any sense if you're this driven to be this crazed person you don't have time for normal right although he, he did just propose to catwoman in recently uh, but also like <laughs> you could but if, but if you wanted to include something about how finding relationships outside of his quest for revenge makes him a better person that's fine but you need to write it that way not just like you know this kind of puppy love nonsense will they or won't they um and i know they will because in the framing device you tell me they will but i of course now i just have to wait for you to get there anyway so she's out also ari is out because um She's confusing. She is apparently a dead end plot device that was we're setting up this character just so that Quoth can have a backdoor into the archives. Um, but she never really does anything more than that. I mean, maybe she's going to be something later on, but I I get the feeling that only because he wrote an entire short story about her from her perspective that was like 
not a short story. I mean, it was like <laughs> a novella, Slow Regard or Silent Things, which I read and it was a struggle to get through because it's basically just her mucking around in her little underground area, which once again talks to the technology like, what is this place? Is it a sewer? Is it, you know, yeah. a sister? Like, I don't know. But and it doesn't go anywhere. But it's like, why would he spend so and like people love this short story. I don't really know why. I'm just like, I think it's supposed to be like a view into some of like mental illness. I don't know. But like, I feel like she has to be more than just a way into the archives, just like I feel like Denna has to be more than just a puppy love distraction. But I just doesn't seem like that's what's going on at this point. At this point in in the in the story, if we haven't paid off on those things yet, I'm assuming we're not going to. And I think they're distractions from the larger plot, which is he has to he has to uncover these myths in order to find the truth that he needs to to uh, defeat the demons who killed his family. Um, everything else is a distraction, and um, you know I think you need side characters, but they also need to have their own motivations. And Denna is the only other character who even kind of has her own motivations, but her her real motivation is basically like, um, you know, stay away from dudes who want commitment. I don't know. It's not really all that interesting or, and again, in the context of some other things in the books, feels kind of gross. feels kind of, you know, capital N, capital G, nice guy. Uh, so we're getting rid of Denna. We're getting rid of Ari. We're also getting rid of Ben or his kind of initial magic tutor. Because I don't like the idea of him coming to the university already like a hotshot wizard. I think that's kind of silly and doesn't really help things. Um, he, I mean, Quoth should be as familiar with magic when he gets to the university as a lay person is with, you know, somebody who's going to the school to be a lawyer. He should be about as familiar with that, you know, as a person would be with law for the entering into their first year. Like, he's not... He knows what magic is. He knows what it's capable of. But it's not like he's had this secret um, tutelage in it so that he shows up already the best. Um, that's another part of what makes, you know, if you're going to tell a story about school, you know, have your characters learn things and not have them show up already, you know, already yeah. basically have a senior level education. Like, then what's the point of them being at school? And I would go one step further and I would say he should be behind because if you're going to follow this, you know, this story device that he's part of this, like, nomadic arts based community he probably shouldn't be as good at math and science which in magic is basically science so like what you know he should be a little behind and be like and he has to use his theatrics and things to have you been reading ahead i actually haven't but okay well all right so um yeah you might it seems sounds like you've been reading ahead so um uh and the last thing uh yeah no fantasy karate we never he's we don't know him to be a great fighter um, because he's going to be good at two things. One is, um, naming that magic thing. He's going to turn out to be pretty okay at, but also, um, to your point, theatrics, he spent his first 20 years of life being a world-class performer, learning how to sing and dance and act and do stage magic and tell stories and all of those things. And that's how he gets out of trouble. Not by just being great at karate and beating people up, um, uh, and lastly, the university is the setting of the story, not a driver of the plot. Um, I don't give a shit about all the stupid little like dorm pranks and frat nonsense that goes on in this book. Um, the puppy love, um, college all tuition. Of, yeah. Like all of these things that are like, oh, it's like a story about college, but it happens to take place in a fantasy world. It's like, no, I want a fantasy story that happens to take place in a college world. Um, you know, 
he's going to the university because it's part that is a step in his goal to learning more about the Chandrian so he can one day get his revenge. Not going there so that he can, you know, fart around on campus and like go to the bar with his buddies. All right. Yeah. So set up, talking about the framing device and uh maybe kind of the larger uh elements of the plot. So the framing device should happen when Quoth is in his forties or fifties, not in his like mid twenties, the way it is. Is in the that original. all he is? Yeah. I assumed he was in his forties or something. No, no, no. They yeah, because because oh, he's God. written like he's fifty. Yeah. Because yeah, Rothfuss writes a twenty-five year old like a fifty year old and a fifteen year old like a twenty-five year old. But um <laughs> but he also like he should if he's gonna talk like a grizzled old wise man, he should have the years to back it up. Um and also some time to get some perspective on it, but also time for that big legend about him to grow. Like if all this stuff was happening in his teenage years, and now it's only ten years later. Like, to put that in perspective, that would be like you and me talking about the time that Michael Jackson literally walked on the moon or when um, Barack Obama won the presidency by miraculously curing all disease in America. Like, those <laughs> legends don't develop in just 10 years. Like, it needs time to build. So if this is stuff that happened to him in his 20s and now it's 20 to 30 years later in his 40s and 50s, okay, I, now I can believe that, there, that all these legends have built up around it. Um I don't think we need the whole, like, he's detailing this thing word for word to Chronicler. That just causes all kinds of weird problems. Now I have to come up with a scene that explains why he can write so fast. And also add to Quoth's amazing stat list by saying he's got perfect memory to recall these things. We can just kind of go back and forth between a, a, a you know, a past, a past narrative and a present day narrative. And the, the past narrative is narrated by the Quoth that's experiencing it at the time, not some man looking back on it. Because also Rothfuss kind of confuses that at times where it's like, yeah. all right, is this 16-year-old Quoth talking about how beautiful Denna is? Or is this, you know, 25-year-old Quoth looking back and remembering it? And it's just, it's never quite clear and sometimes gets creepy and weird. Um, so uh, so now we're in the present day and somebody has shown up uh, to get, somebody has found out that this guy who's been living in hiding is actually the legendary Quoth and somebody comes along and says, aha, it's you. We need you to save the world. We need you to come out of hiding because you killed a king at some point, which we'll get to, I think, in my version. <laughs> um, and the re we're going to get you out of hiding because we have that last bit of information you need, the last piece of the puzzle, the one you thought you'd never find to help you on your quest to defeat the Chandrian. Um, so that's the setup. Not like, oh, there's like maybe some spiders outside. I don't know. Tell us your story, please. Lots of detail about what you ate and when. And can you tell us how much money you had at any given point? No, it's, it's you know, it's happening about we need the legendary quotes to come out and we have it and we're motivating you by, you know, helping you complete your quest. But what we're going to learn throughout the the past story, the main story is that the legend of Quoth is so much bigger than the man that they're coming here looking for this fantasy superhero. And what they've got is a guy who's, eh, he can do a couple magic tricks and maybe, you know, maybe talk his way out of some puzzles. He's not all he's cracked up to be. Um, so that we actually have some tension as we're reading it. Not like, oh man, when is present day Quoth going to be awesome again so that he can go be awesome? It's like, man, can present day Quoth get his... Can he do this? Can he solve this problem? Because he's not as strong as everybody thinks he is. Um, yeah, I don't need any more detail about um, 
how much money he makes or needs. I mean, I think that, so the right level of detail for something like this is something like, and I'm gonna use dollars instead of whatever stupid fantasy currency he came up with. Uh, it's something like, I was making about $150 a, uh, you know, I was, or I was making about $50 a week, but rent was $500, which means I needed to come up with about another $300 or I was gonna get kicked out. Like that's about the level of detail you need. Cause it's like, okay, he needs a lot of money to solve the problem. How much money about what he normally earns in a month. So that's like, all right, I, I can get my head around that. I don't need the exact numbers. I just need enough to establish the tension of he's got to double his income this month in order to make rent. Cool. Got it. Um, and I think the biggest one is Quoth is no longer good at literally everything. Oh, man. <laughs> he's good. And this is the kind of the conclusion you reached also. He's good at one thing, and that is theater. Um, because that's what he spent his first 20 years of life learning how to do. Um, so he's got – so, I mean, he's got – but he's got all the checklists there. He's got – he's an actor. He's a storyteller. He's a musician. Um he understands how stories work. He understands how to, you know, um, how to pretend to be someone else. He understands music. He understands art. Um, but I, I think that he he's only going to understand that stuff on kind of a technical level. Like I'm imagining him when he gets to university more like he's like one of these kids that like comes out of the Disney child star training program where you're like, all right, you're very good at a bunch of things, but I'm not sure if there's anything going on behind your eyes. Um, but he, he knows how to do, do all these things well, but growing up, he's got kind of a chip on his shoulder where he kind of feels like all this theatrical performing stuff. It's kind of bullshit. I want to do something more and I want to do something bigger. Um, but all the skills he has are just the skills of a performer. He's great. I mean, the Edema Roo are the cream of the crop of performers in this world. So he's, again, it's like, you know, it's like you're Britney Spears and you're Justin Timberlake's and you're Ryan Gosling's like they come out of that incubator, like really good at everything. Um, so he's got that level of skill, but he, he kind of resents it a little bit. He kind of feels like it's a little bit, um, frivolous. And he also kind of resents the way that he gets pigeonholed by society in general for being an edema rue. Like there is kind of a, you know, they're not like, persecuted the way they are in the original. Maybe there, it's just more like people don't take them seriously in the way that we don't, you know, it took many, many, many years of hard effort on his part for any of us to start taking Justin Timberlake seriously. <laughs> like true. that's, that's where, that's where we're at. Um, and that's also ties into one of our larger themes about the real person versus the assumptions about them and the, the legend about them. Um, but I also think it's important to not have this trope of he's super good at everything he puts his hand to, because I think that that's bad for the culture because the world is not run by these demigods who are good at everything they try. The world is run by people who have a narrow skill set, but they have found out how to really leverage that skill set in the world. Um, and that's an inspiring message for people. Find the thing you're good at and become the best at it, as opposed to you're really only awesome if you max out every single skill tree. Oh, and by the way, it should be super easy to max out all those skill trees because like quote, you should take to everything uh, you put your hand to instantly. Um, and when you have these demigod characters like Quoth in your story, then everybody else, everyone around them is like some untermensch, like barely alive. Like are, are any of the characters in his orbit good at anything? 
Denna is a kind of competent musician, but really all she's really good at is being pretty. Um, All of his college friends, we don't know what their fantasy majors are. Um, If they're any good at them, it doesn't matter. Nothing matters, (laughs) you know, unless it's about both and how good he is. And it's like the more stories we have like that, the more our culture is built around stories about like some people are super awesome. Oh, and by the way, there's everybody else. That's not a positive view of the world. I don't like it. Um, and also it devalues all the other characters in such a way that they're all defined based on what they can do for Quoth. It's, it's like a, it's like an, uh, it's like Elder Scrolls or other, you know, kind of, uh, RPG video games where every character is essentially either a quest giver or they unlock a skill tree for you. And Mm -hmm. they exist to serve you, the player character and every character in, um, the Rothfuss books either serves to uh, is either there to serve Quoth, um, usually by telling him how awesome he is, um, or to like just stand in his way for no good reason. Like, here's a question: Why does Ambrose uh, constantly try to stymie Quoth? What's his motivation for getting in Quoth's way? He's mean. Yes. What is uh, the uh, Snape? I mean, uh, no. What's the what's the bad professor? Hem? Oh, uh, yeah. Why does he always want to uh, get in Quoth's way? He's mean. Exactly. And, you know, none of these characters have any other reason for being opposed to Quoth other than, like, um, yeah, they're just mean. They're just opposed to him. Like, Ambrose, the inciting incident was Ambrose was, like, creeping on Fella a little bit. And Quoth, like, you know, word played him out of it. And now, now Ambrose is, like, hiring dudes to murder him. Is that how the world works? Is that a character, a realistic character motivation? But this is the way Rothfuss wrote these. All of these, all of these characters are their entire existence is in relation to Quoth. Ambrose hates Quoth because Quoth was smarter than him once. Hem hates Quoth because it's probably the implication is because like he's like jealous of how smart Quoth is. It's like not only is that just unrealistic and sloppy writing, but also Again, if we're building our culture based on these types of stories, the more stories like this we have, the more self-centered we all become and assume that everyone exists in relation to us. What can they do for me or how do they stand in my way? And I don't think that's the kind of message we want to soak our culture in. Now, I just want to add the caveat. I'm not saying like, what if children read this? Don't I get bad ideas about the world? I'm not saying that. I'm saying the Stories are the building blocks of our culture, and if you have enough shitty bricks in there, it's going to fall apart. And this is a very shitty brick, the way it's written of everything is, Quoth is the center of everyone's universe. You're either for him or against him, and it's like every character goes to sleep dreaming about Quoth. Um, So I want to change that. (laughs) Uh, Why? Uh, and I look, I'm not saying I'm not saying that, you know, having a couple really juvenile wish fulfillment of, you know, um, your central character is at the center of everybody's universe. I'm not saying that that's that we can't have any of those. But this book, uh, I feel like deserves better. And while we're breaking things down, we might as well build them right. And let's not just do pulpy wish fulfillment. There's enough of that. Yeah, I mean, I think that I like this direction a lot. It reminds me of um, part of it is, uh, and the reason you thought I was reading ahead is because we, we had sort of had this idea once. It was we, me and my friends were doing a D&D weekend where we, you know, from Friday till Sunday night, we just played D&D nonstop. 
and we had hit a point where we had finished a campaign a little early and we didn't, you know, we didn't know what to do next. So it was like one o'clock in the morning and Roger was like, I'm going to go make a campaign. You guys make these characters. Okay. And Keith and I, my good friend Keith, uh, we made characters that were as close to our personalities as possible, uh, which is unusual for an RPG because you're trying to do something different. Um, it was also late. Uh, and our <laughs> characters were a bard and a wizard who were performers. I was a wizard, but I put all my spells into like dazzling lights and like, you know, like production things. And he was a bard who could sing and like do these kind of things. And basically, we split both in two. Yeah. And we got drugged and, you know, dragged into an adventure uh, where really we just wanted to kind of like get our business off the ground and like make a few <laughs> dollars. But, uh, so that's, I, I like that because it's, it's cool to me. I would go a slightly different direction or I wouldn't say I would go. I like this a lot. But if you want to keep both good at everything, you have to go extreme the other way. And the slight hints we have in the story so far that maybe Quoth being good at everything isn't so good for him. Uh, like, you know, when he, I mean, he, it, in the sense of the story, these are bad guys. So it was okay. But when he like rains hellfire, not real hellfire, but like in the metaphorical sense, butchers those bandits, not the second time, the first time he like gets in that <laughs> big fight and you're just like, holy shit, this guy is brutal. And then the second time when he literally butchers, I mean, poisons and then slaughters the fake Ademaru is like, wow, maybe this guy is not a good person. And all this, like his talent has made him evil or, or something. You know, we go a different right. route, like go that harder. Like if, if maybe there are, maybe there is that one person who probably rolled twenties and all their stats. And like, are they, are they a good person? Would they be a good person if someone was that talented at everything? Well, I don't know. That's, that's a, and, and I feel like this is getting into Sanderson territory here too, but like when I read the Mistborn books and you've got the the Mistborn characters who have all the superpowers and are really good at them, yeah, they feel a little overpowered and they feel a little bit like a Mary Sue, but also um, we do see some internal conflict with them and how they deal with their powers, but also it becomes interesting because there are other Mistborn who show up and they're bad guys. And it's like when another one shows up, you're like, oh, shit, it's going down now. Yeah. Like you're like you're excited to see that. But this book like, OK, so maybe in this world there are people like both who, yeah, like you say, they roll 20s on their character sheet. There should be a couple other people like him to actually give him a challenge and not only challenge him and give us some interesting action on the page, but also to – um give some context to his actions like all right so maybe he is some rarefied elite special guy but there should be other special people too so that he's not just a demigod walking around all the time it's the dragon ball method of every time you know his power level goes up up here comes a guy who's 10 times higher what are we gonna do but with growth it's like i got a new magic and uh, now i'm now i'm awesome at that magic yeah instead of being two times better than every other person i now eight times yes. and now 10 times and now 20 yes. times. And like you said, like the Dragon Ball method of like, uh, you know, like having a new person come along whose power level is just as strong. Like it's stupid, but it kind of works for that reason because right. you're adding stakes to the story. Right. It's like, like honestly, one of the ways that they could have done this is like, have the Shandrian company dump this guy's books a couple of times. Be like, yo, what are you doing? Knock it off. Just like, or have something happen where he like near misses with like getting in some serious trouble and it just, just seems like, no, he's fine. No, everything is going to be fine for him, always. Uh, so that's the setup. And um, I have outlined a little bit of how I want the story to go. Uh, to give you a teaser for the next part of this, um, we're going to talk about um, 
how Kvothe gets to the gets to the school and manages to get through his first year, even though he has absolutely no idea how to do any magic, and turns out he's terrible at it, and he uh, he's going to get through his first year without ever ever actually doing any sympathy. Um, we'll talk about that mysterious door that's so interesting <laughs> that we're never going to open because he forgot Roth was forgot about it when he was telling us about. And the chest and the other chest. Right. And the other two mysterious locked boxes. (laughs) Um, uh, How he learns how to do naming uh, on his own without just being some kind of fucked up chosen one. Um, uh, And even a little bit of where I think you could go in what would be the second book in this series, uh, which would be the the wise man's fear. All right. And I had my second epiphany just now. Mm -hmm. Name of the wind is like how my experience for every fantasy RPG plays out. Here's why. I don't actually read most of the lore, so I don't actually really know the story. I kind of half listen to the cutscenes and, and maybe read some <laughs> things online. <laughs> just, I don't pursue the main plot line. That yep. locked door stays locked forever because I'm off saving like, you know, people from feral rabbits and then I get bored and forget about it. No, exactly. It's these books. <laughs> these books are someone writing down their uh, their playthrough of an open world RPG. It's just you know, there's a main quest. Like it's that that kind of trope about like open world games, especially RPGs. Of like, there's a the world's about to end. It's going to end any minute now, unless you, the Dragonborn, stop it. But take your time. I mean, it's not a. It's not going to actually start until you like go into that area and actually queue the events. But like that's the way it feels like with this whole like Den is being horribly abused subplot. It's like, like you get that little ping like new quest, go help Denna, and you're like, it's fine. That quest is going to stay exactly where it is <laughs> until I walk over to it and trigger it. Um, it feels exactly like like that. You're exactly right. Yeah, uh, which is one thing I will say about The Witcher that I'm enjoying because it's not quite so like. Oh, the whole world's ending, blah, blah. It's like, well, I just investigate and like investigating might lead down some weird ways. So right. it's not quite as clear. So yeah. Uh, which is maybe another path you could go for this. But yeah, this is, this is not. And, and from my completion rate of RPGs on, you know, and video games is, is abysmally low means it's probably not the best way to go about playing them and definitely not the best way to go about writing a fantasy series. <laughs> All right, buddy. Well, uh, we will check back in on this soon and, uh, Enjoy your week until then, huh? Me too. Later.